Well, you know, it used to be in the old days, a long time ago, before we had so many colleges and universities, a good trivia question was the name of the mascots that don't end in the letter S. Uh, and the, and one of them was always Wolfpack. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like you've got Tar Heel, Demon Deacon, uh-huh. you know, Blue Devils. Yeah, that's a very good point. But uh, but uh, NC State was always one of the answers. But there's a, a lot of permutations of those names now. And uh, but uh, isn't a, 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 a Stanford is the Stanford Cardinal? Is that right? Cardinal. Yeah, it was Singular. one that, And I think it used to be something else, and they changed it to Cardinal as yeah. part of the business with Native Americans and so on. I believe that I read something about that recently. Uh, We've got a few extra seconds tonight. What did, I think we talked about, was Ezra Cornell in the railroad business? I think he was in the railroad business, yeah. Uh, He was the man that they named. uh, uh, And the interesting thing, we talked about this, Tom, but it bears repeating, the interesting thing about Cornell is that it's sort of like putting uh, UNC Chapel Hill and NC State together because they're not... There was a uh, original Cornell that um, had the social sciences, uh, had engineering, had the law school, uh, had a medical school, which was actually located in New York City. And then, uh, not sure when, but the land grant part was appended. And you had colleges like agriculture, you had a college uh, called labor relations, the vet school, et cetera. And the tuitions were different depending on what, what college you were in. The tuition was different. Well, I've done some studying of the land-grant universities, and it's interesting the patterns that they've followed because in some states, like New York, it's divvied up among different, the different schools. In North Carolina, you have state and the UNC Chapel Hill, but you also have North Carolina A&T. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the yeah, South, you had important. a parallels you know, mm-hmm. system for for African Americans, but Purdue is the land grant university in Indiana, mm-hmm. but in Illinois it's all on the same campus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Ohio State, I think it's all on the same. And of course, campus. yeah, the the part of the land grant effort, the extension program, which what I'm doing now is part of that outreach. Um, here in North Carolina, we have outreach from NC State extension programs, but also from AT AT and T. Well, it's, that is one of the great. Uh, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time studying the Civil War, and a lot of it's about Gettysburg and Antietam and so on, but uh, I read a historical article recently that was about not the battles, but things like the, the Morrell Act and, uh-huh. uh, and the other things that took place that created uh, the, the land-grant universities and also the land-grant system, the homestead system in the West and so on. So uh, there's a lot of stuff to, going on between 1860 and 1865. In uh, any way, and one of the interesting things about Cornell is it's an Ivy League school. I think I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> if I can remember them all: Yale, Harvard, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, Brown, Dartmouth, and Cornell. I think that's it. I think you got all of them. Yeah. Pen? Did you get pen? No, but we got all of. Them. Anyway, we get down to the business of the economy, and as I suggested in my introduction, a lot of tonight's program, especially the first half, we're going to talk about some. Bibliography during the second half books that you might recommend that you've read for people who want to understand economics, and it's always good to have a recommendation from a person like yourself. But in the first half, we're going to be talking about the economy, and most of it is going to have to do with the effect of uh, the virus on, on the economy and so on. So, Dr. Walton, I'll, ha- I'll hand the ball to you. And uh, well, actually, let's take a break. Let's let's let that be a tease. When we come back, 
Dr. Mike Walden will be talking about the resurgence of the coronavirus and the effect on the economy. WPTF, Tom Kearney, along with our special guest, uh, Dr. Mike Walden, our resident economist who's been coming to visit us since about 1989 to keep us up on what's going on with the economy. And Dr. Walden, I think uh, I pitched the idea that you were going to be talking about the 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 effect of the resurgence of the coronavirus. Uh, that's right, Tom. And unfortunately, we have had a resurgence. In fact, most people, when this virus was targeted and, and pinpointed and, and when it began, most experts said we probably would have a, uh, uh, a double dose of it, at least. That is, uh, it came, we, we got it under control, and then there would be a reemergence. Uh, and it looks like we're in that. Cases are going up. Hospitalizations are going up. Deaths are going up. We, we've seen some states reinstate stay-at-home orders. We've not had that yet in North Carolina. The governor's issued some orders about uh, many many institutions, many uh, businesses closing at night by 10 o'clock. Um, this is probably going to put a crimp in the economic recovery. We have been <clears throat> recovering from the um, uh, COVID-19 recession uh, really since May. April was the worst month, and we've actually had job growth since May. The job numbers have been getting smaller. The improvement spending is getting smaller. Uh, I'm worried that even with Christmas sales, we may we may see job growth uh, come to an end uh, until we get this this uh, bout of the virus over. Now, clearly, the good news, and, and this is all over the news now, the media now, is the, the vaccines. And tomorrow, I think we likely, I'll be surprised if the FDA does not approve the Pfizer vaccine. That's the first, that was the first one out of the box. They've already released some documents that suggest that they are very impressed with the the Pfizer vaccine. So I I think we'll probably get approval of the Pfizer vaccine tomorrow, which means that there'll be some doses being released. I think, I stand to be corrected on this, I think North Carolina is going to get the Pfizer vaccine. And of course, there's going to be a process of it's going to go to to the most vulnerable and then work its way through the rest of the population. It's likely not going to be until probably the beginning of the summer before everyone uh, wants to get vaccinated is vaccinated. Um, but that'll be a big boost to the economy uh, of confidence, if nothing else. We start getting people vaccinated and people are feeling very positive about the economic future. Um, so I think we're probably going to end the year with the, the economy moving very slowly, uh, maybe even a, a step or two back. Unemployment rate uh, is already down to 6%. We were up to around 12, 13, 14% in, in North Carolina and the nation. That's down to 6 now, but that's a little deceptive. And, and the reason I, I say that, Tom, is that it's not counting people as unemployed who, who are, are not looking for work because maybe they're scared to be out interacting with people because of the virus. Maybe they have children home that they have to take care of or maybe someone's sick. And if you're if you're someone who's unemployed and you want a job but you're not actually out there looking for work, you're not counted officially by the official methodology of being unemployed. So I think I think probably the real unemployment rate's closer to eight percent rather than, than six percent and I and this pertains to both the North Carolina and the nation. Um, there already been there's already been some discussion about when we do get to the other side of this, which is I think going to be the first part of next year, and hopefully by by summer things will be some somewhere close, very close to normal. Whether North Carolina is going to come out of this looking good or looking bad compared to other states, and I'm I'm in the first category. I think North Carolina, if you look at the metrics in terms of things like death. 
job loss, et cetera, you put those two together, we look very good compared to many other states. So I think I think people are going to look at North Carolina positively after this. I don't think it's going to hurt our brand. And indeed, uh, there's a, a lot of people have talked about this, but in some of the big metropolitan areas of the country that have really had enormous problems with, with COVID-19, New York metropolitan area, Los Angeles, uh, Atlanta, for example, uh, if there are businesses and people uh, in those metro areas who are looking to relocate, uh, North Carolina is a great place for them to go. Uh, Raleigh, Charlotte, the Triad, uh, and as well as places like Nashville, Tennessee, and Columbus, Ohio, and, and, and places in Texas. So I think we could, we should come out of this still with our brand and our attractiveness very much intact. Well, I know it's been for the people dealing with it, uh, uh, whatever their persuasion or whatever, but who've been you know elected and cast with the problem. It's been a real case of tiptoeing through the tulips, so, so to speak, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I feel very, very bad for the businesses who have um, who have had to uh, reduce their 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 uh, activities, or, or they're on the verge of shutting down. I, I have I have a friend who has a couple of small businesses who um, who had to um, virtually throw in the towel. Um, so I, I certainly don't want to minimize the, the economic havoc that the virus has, has caused. And we're probably looking at among small businesses, which tend to be the most vulnerable because they don't have the financial backstop that maybe big businesses have. We're probably looking, Tom, at a, a bankruptcy rate that's certainly above 25%, which is enormous. And if you, if you take that, if you uh, segment out places like restaurants, it's probably going to be even higher. And that's going to hurt our recovery next year because we're not going to have those businesses that are going to re-up and start hiring people. Um, so so we're, this, this virus is going to leave, leave an economic scar business-wise and, and for many households. And I think that's why probably the next administration will devote more, ask Congress for more resources to track potential viruses that could turn into pandemics and make sure that we are are stocked with uh, supplies if, uh, if another pandemic comes. And I wouldn't be surprised, I think I mentioned this to you on a previous program, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the actions by Congress is to elevate uh, some of the agencies that deal with, with uh, virus detection and, and virus prevention, like the CDC and some others, take those agencies and combine them and elevate them to a cabinet-level federal department, similar to what we did after 9-11 with the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, so we could have something like the Department of Pandemic, Pandemic Prevention. I, I think that would be a very logical thing, the next step to take to, to elevate those functions, because I do think probably when you think about the, the trillions, and we're talking about trillions of dollars of economic loss, not to mention personal loss, just the, the, you, know, you can't put a dollar value on that, people dying. What probably when all is said and done, we may very well have over 300,000 people dead from this. But when you look at the, the economic losses in the trillions of dollars, spending uh, $100 billion more a year, for example, to, to try to get a heads up on the next pandemic and making sure we're prepared, uh, the, the, the returns that are enormous. Well, certainly the landscape is going to look a lot different. I don't know if this is appropriate. Oh, I don't, it isn't. Question isn't appropriate, but Mrs. Kearney and I have a, a restaurant. I, at least I, I'm fond of a restaurant called Lucky Thirty Two. I uh -huh. may be familiar oh, yeah. with I, it. I know that. And, well, uh, yeah. We've uh, 
made a point of having to pick it up at the curve orders to just, you know, keep our hand in with them, you know, mm-hmm. give them whatever support we could. Uh, I'm pretty much a stay-at-home person most of the yeah. time, but uh, we felt like we really ought to do that. In fact, I went to the Manmore Barbershop the other day and got my hair. Oh, yeah, right the across only, from campus. Yes, yes. I got the, I was the only customer in there. You got the Tom Kearney special, probably. <laughs> you know, it's actually the second time I've done that, and, and I was the only person in there, so I felt very safe, and I've been been going there for 50 years, so uh, oh, yeah. anyway, but, uh, uh, you know, we we got to, where we can and feel safe, we've still yeah. got to do that, because we've got to keep the wheels turning. It's a, Don't talk your ear off in Manmar. Pardon me? Don't talk your ear off. In oh, yes. No, that's one reason I enjoy it. It's usually... But more fun than you'd think it would be. Uh, and of course, my late father would always refer to getting a haircut as having your ears lowered. <laughs> well, you know that's one of the things that has not changed a lot from the time since the time of your father's day. You know, uh, uh, they're still using straight razors to shave the back of your mm-hmm. neck, and you, you know what I mean. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I've always said I wanted to get get a complete shave and a haircut. You know what it was at twenty five cents. Yeah, and I never have done that, but now may be may be the time to do it. But anyway. and for those in your audience who don't know what what Man Murph stands for, it's from Manny Oda Murphy. Well, and it, and and they made it. Uh, Richard Creech, who is the the owner there, has explained that uh, he was. They had a little thing that was on Channel Five TV recently uh, on that program that's on that you know is, is reverential about North Carolina places, and and then it re- reason is is that. The, Hillsborough Street used to be Highway One, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, or 64 actually. 64. 64. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah, was yeah. supposed to be halfway between Mania and Murphy, but yeah. of course it's not. It's, but anyway, that's where the Manmore came from. Yeah. And that he was telling me that story the other day. And so, ah, but anyway, uh, well, I, I'm we're actually vamping right now a little bit. I have uh, have uh, managed to scribble down what you're supposed to be talking about next, and. Uh, uh, it looks like it has something to do with, with the virus too. Uh, well, let, yeah. Let's if uh, and you you keep the clock on me here, Tom. But uh, the other besides the resurgence of the virus in terms of um, uh, economic policy, the the next uh, the big issue here is whether there'll be another aid package coming out of Washington. We've already had three, totaling about three trillion dollars. Uh, we haven't had one in months. A lot of the aid package money uh, will expire at the end of this month, and so there's concern that people who are unemployed uh, uh, perhaps will fall through the cracks, uh, people who businesses, uh, as I already mentioned, might, might more than might go under. So there's a, there's a push right now, debate right now in Washington, to whether to have another aid package, probably be in the trillion-dollar range, that would perhaps uh, provide some supplements to people getting unemployment compensation, would provide some additional loans. Uh, to businesses, the sticking point appears to be two. Sticking points appear to be two. One, Republicans want there to be language in the bill that would uh, prevent people from suing companies uh, for uh, costs related to the virus, give them okay. liability protection. Let's pick this up okay. after. All right, I'll stop. Uh-huh. Let's pick this up with part two after we check the news, Mike. Thanks okay. a lot. Hold on right here, right now. We'll be back. Thursday night is going to be one of those nostalgia nights. It may be something seasonal, but we hope you'll tune in. It's kind of an open phone night, too. We like to have at least one night when when we can encourage you to be the engine as a caller to drive the program. 
Uh, Friday night will be uh, the usual trivia program, and we're going to be talking about movies that inspire your Christmas season, Christmas movies, Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, The Christmas Story, Christmas in Connecticut, those kinds of things. But tonight, we're talking about the economy with Dr. Mike Walden of NC State University, our monthly visit from Dr. Walden usually comes about this time, uh, and uh, he is here tonight, and we've Dr. Walton, I'm going to hand it back to you and let you uh, let you go with the economy part of our program as far as you want to go. And at some point, you can wave figuratively, wave at me and say, let's talk about books now. And, and real quick, Tom, you mentioned Christmas movies. You mentioned Christmas, Christmas in Connecticut, which is one of my all-time favorites, the original with Barbara Stanwyck. But one of the few Christmas movies that my wife Mary agrees with this, the remake, which starred Chris Christopherson, uh, was, I think, equally as good, uh, and that's right. not usually the case. Well, anyway, we were talking about the um, the debate in Congress right now about a fourth, I think this will be the fourth relief package uh, to deal with the COVID-19, be about a trillion dollars, it would provide, I think, a $300 supplement, weekly supplement for people who are unemployed. Uh, it would provide, I believe, some more uh, uh, loans uh, to businesses. Uh, the two sticking points are, and I mentioned this right before the break, one is um, the Republicans want there to be a language that protects businesses from being sued for uh, damage done by COVID-19. Someone might say, well, you didn't take the proper precautions here, so we're suing you. Uh, so there, there's, a, there, there's support in Congress on one side to have some protections there. Uh, and the other sticking point apparently is money to uh, help support state and local governments who are seeing the revenues um, uh, not at levels they were expecting due to the virus because of obviously the, the deep recession we had earlier this year. And there seems to be a political divide there. Uh, Democrats are more in favor of that than Republicans. So we'll have to see if anything like that does does get through. And, and the, the problem here is a lot of the earlier measures that were passed, many of those provisions expired at the end of this year, and yet the virus is going on. So Again, I think this is this is something that we it was just hard to calculate how long this virus was going to last, when we were going to get the vaccine, et cetera. So it's not surprising to me that um, that there's a strong move to have some more aid coming out of Washington. And the final thing I'll say about this, because I get asked this all the time, and I think we have talked about this, but I'll, I'll just repeat it. Where's all this money coming from that comes from the federal government? Well, it is being borrowed. It is adding to the national debt. National debt's probably going to go up by about $4 trillion from what it was when all was said and done, so going from about $24 trillion to $28 trillion. And so we're, we're, we're borrowing from the future to do this. And the justification for those who want to justify it is that if we didn't do that, uh, the damage would be so much greater. That is, we'd have uh, higher bankruptcy rates, we'd have people uh, uh, in dire straits. Um, and so the question is, do you borrow from the future to sort of save a big part of your economy now, or do you not? And obviously decision-makers made the decision to go ahead and, and do the borrowing. But we will pay for this in the future in terms of debt. That reminds me uh, of uh, an interview I heard about the time of the Bicentennial, which would have been 1976. You remember Alistair Cook, uh, oh, yeah. Dr. Walden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was uh, theater. Yeah, yeah. much in fashion. He did Masterpiece Theater on uh, mm -hmm. on television, and he... Uh, he had he said he had conducted an interview with an Italian immigrant who had come to America and had been here 41 years, and he wanted to know on the bicentennial what the Italian immigrant had learned. And he said, "Well, uh, 
Mr. Cook, uh, there's no free lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, there is no free lunch. We, we will have to pay. It will just be in another. Yeah, it'll be in another form. That's right. Another yeah. form. And, 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 a, and the question is, will, if we didn't do that, would the cost be greater than what we have to pay in the future? Exactly. Really exactly. And, and I didn't mean to be flippant about no, 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 that. No, no, no. That's a very, very good point. Well, you wanted to talk about books, Tom, and I'm always happy. Books are my passion. That probably goes with being an academic. One of my one of my ongoing struggles is managing all the books I have. <laughs> I'm always wanting to get more books. Fortunately, I have a library at NC State who will take books that I find I, I don't have room to keep. But um, I have made a list of about six books that uh, I would recommend to people and that uh, made an impression like with, on me. First, I'll get two personal books right off the bat, two that I had published this year that I wrote. One, uh, a policy book called Real Solutions, uh, which deals with all of the major economic issues that we hear people talk about, taxes, debt, income inequality, health care, budget, um, climate change, immigration, et cetera. They're all in there, and and my my take on them and, and my approach to them. So that book is called Real Solutions. Common Sense Answers to Our Country's Most Pressing Problems. And then the other book I wrote and was published this year was a, a fun book on my, my part. It's a, it's a novel. It's a, what I call a political thriller called Dishunia. It takes a lot of the current political issues that we have going, and I'm, I'm presenting some. I use them to wrap around a plot that has some intrigue to it. Uh, uh, no one gets killed. No blood spilled, but uh, have some her- heroes and heroines in it. So that's called Disunia, D-I-S-U-N-I-O-N-I-A, and that's also available now. And both my books, all my books are available in the typical places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and you can get Quail Ridge to order them in your local bookstores. But beyond that, let me let me start with a non-economics book that you and I, Tom, have talked about off the air. And it's just a great book, probably reveals my age because I've lived through all these things. It's a biography uh, called The Man Who Ran Washington, and it's a biography of James A. Baker III. And who was James A. Baker III? Well, let me count how many things he did. He was uh, a political strategist. He ran campaigns for Ronald Reagan. He ran campaigns for uh, uh, George George, uh, H.W. Bush. Uh, He was Ronald Reagan's uh, first chief of staff. And then in Reagan's second term, he was secretary of the Treasury. And then he came back under uh, George H.W. Bush as uh, Secretary of State and actually ended his career in Washington. I think many people don't remember this. He actually stepped down as Secretary of State in uh, late 1992 when George H.W. Bush was running for re-election and went back to being Chief of Staff and running that campaign, which was a losing campaign where George H.W. Bush was defeated for re-election. a lot of stories in there. You get a you get a real feel for the personalities that, that Baker uh, worked with, and uh, I I came away Tom from from that book thinking, boy, if I ever uh, and, and a, uh, Baker's still alive, he's ninety, but he obviously he's past his prime. But I came away thinking, if I was a person of of any means and importance in this time, and I was in a jam, this is the guy <laughs> I want. To get me out of the jam, he was an amazing, had an amazing ability to work with people, and and accomplish his objectives for the people that he was he was working for. He was a kind of fixer, I think. If if, if, if 
nothing else, you know, and, and getting and uh, yeah, well, he's to work a, with he, people. Yeah, he was a fixed. But I think he was. I mean, I, you, 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 at least I took away from this. He was much more than that. He he had an uncanny ability to. He was a diplomat. I mean, he had extraordinary personal personal skills, and he had an extraordinary ability to to uh, and do through diplomacy and through befriending people and and through pressing the right buttons to achieve the policy goals of, of the people he worked for, whether it be Reagan or George H.W. Bush. Um, there are stories in there about um, uh, his relationship he developed with, uh, uh, and I can't, I won't try to pronounce his name, but he was the foreign minister of, um, of uh, Soviet Union. I think he was actually the last foreign minister of the Soviet Union before it, before it collapsed. And... Um, uh, he 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 found out that this guy liked hunting, which Baker liked hunting, and brought him over to the U.S. and and uh, took him out to Montana, Wyoming, and they went hunting. He had he had Texas boots made for him, and and he charmed he charmed the guy, and uh, turned out to apparently work. They got some some nuclear arms deals out of it, and and um, and, and some other uh, negotiations were successful. So. He just was one of these people. I, I certainly don't have those skills. He was a people person who could, who could. Um, I don't want to say manipulate, but could, could convince you to do what he wanted you to do. Well, as I mentioned to you when we were talking about it earlier, it's going to be my present to one of my colleagues, mm-hmm. and, and I'm probably going to have to hold back him on a while and read it before I give it to him. He's going to get a used book is what he's going to get. <laughs> But it really has gotten good reviews, and I think you, it's a good choice, and it's good to hear your personal recommendations. Yeah. Uh, next book I'll talk about is is an economics book, and um, it's probably uh, one that a lot of people haven't heard about, but I think it's going to be very apropos to the new administration because the author, and her name is Stephanie Kelton, and she is an economist, PhD, PhD level economist, uh, probably will have some position or at least an advisory role in the in the Biden administration. And she wrote a book called Deficit Myth. And um, it's a presentation of an argument that deficits don't matter. Borrowing doesn't matter. The aforementioned $4 trillion the federal government will likely borrow uh, to deal with COVID-19. She would argue it does matter um, because uh, the federal government can print money to buy the debt. Uh, and, and, and I know this sounds strange, but I think the, the solid takeaway that you get from her book is that she, she makes a good argument for um, the fact that in many cases debt is not bad. And I already gave one argument today with respect to COVID. But think about how many people could buy a house and raise their family in a house if they couldn't borrow money to buy that house. If you had a way to, to amass uh, in this market $300,000, $400,000 to buy a house with cash, uh, most people, especially young people, couldn't do that. And so they would they would forego the ability to have a house that they live in, they control, raise their family, et cetera. So that's an example, I think, of good debt. Another example would be building roads. In North Carolina, build roads all the time. If we had to wait until we until we amass billions of dollars to do that, uh, take a long time. We would have roads with potholes, et cetera. wouldn't have roads going to places we wouldn't have to go to. So there's certainly, I think, a case being made for there are times when debt is actually good. The returns, if you will, on that debt justify the borrowing. And that's the case she, she really makes. 
I, I think she might overplay it, but I think it does give you a new, a good perspective on debt, and I think you're probably going to hear more about her, if not her policies, uh, in the upcoming administration. Well, we'll put it in context of something that's popular in our times. I'm sure that Alexander Hamilton would have approved of all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, um, the government taking care of the debt, that, that wasn't going to hurt the government. The well, government. That, yeah, and you're the historian, Tom, and I bow to you, but my understanding was Hamilton used that to, to establish, at least partially establish, the power of the federal government over the state, taking right. on state debt and uh, turning it into federal debt. Yeah. Well, I, it, it seems like to me uh, that uh, this is just my personal opinion, but that we're much more a Hamiltonian country than we are a Jeffersonian company. And kind of yeah, I, I think that I think that's that's true, and and uh, I don't want to go. This may be a path that uh, gets us off of our main trajectory here, but I think it's I think it's fascinating to read about, uh, and I have done some recent reading, reading about the um, after the revolution and going from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution and the problems of the Articles, and that we do we still are a country of individual states. I think we saw that during the pandemic, the president couldn't order shutdown orders and, and stay-at-home orders. It was governors who, who had to do that because that was in their purview. And we see this again with the election, the fact that the real election is the electors who, who vote from each uh, state, and that's coming up next week. It's not the popular vote. So we still are a country of individual states, and I think that all goes back to this argument uh, that, uh, or, or the situation that we found ourselves in after the revolution with the Articles of Confederation, which was really the loose organization of the states, really not being adequate, and we had to go to a still preserve the powers of the state, but a much stronger central government. Well, in invoking, and I don't want to wander off into the woods too far either, but in invoking Alexander Hamilton's name, you know, we've always been had a pretty stable government and one that paid its debts, and hmm. that inspires confidence, and that's, I think, part of the secret of America's history, is yeah. That, yeah. that it has been like that. We need to take a break now. Okay. And you've got a couple more books. A couple more, that? yeah. Pardon me? I say I've got a couple more on my list, yes. All right. Hopefully and people a, are making a list for uh, for presents. Checking it twice. Well, yeah. then if, and that's a good radio tease. Dr. Mike Walden is our guest. The Tom Kearney Show. We've got to 948 now, and we'll be back. He's been kind enough to give us a list of a few books that he's read this year that he would recommend, and they might be something you want to read to understand economics or give us a present to someone. Dr. Waddle, I think we've got a couple more books and about more. And again, these are these are not all economics. I, I, uh, this is a broader range. But um, the next one I, I would recommend is um, a book. It's a commitment because it's one of those thick, heavy books, about five, 600 pages, but it's by a gentleman named Ian Toll. And he took on, I think about a decade ago, the job of rewriting the history of uh, the war in the Pacific during World War II, which is meaningful to me because that's where my father was during the war. And uh, his final volume just came out this year in that trilogy called Twilight of the Gods. And it uh, recounts the, the battles and the movements and the strategies of uh, leading up to the surrender of Japan in, in 1945. And I've read a lot of books in this, in this area, and I think we have two. Tom, he... he um, he provides new information, has new interpretations, particularly on the personalities. So it's, if you're interested in that part of uh, that time period, that, that part of World War II, 
uh, and you haven't read any of them, I would recommend you, you read the first volume. Uh, this is the third volume that just came out to complete the trilogy. And once again, it's E-N-I-A-N, Toll, T-O-W-L-T-O-L-L, Twilight of the Gods. And the last book I recommend, Tom, is actually one you recommended to me, and it's uh, Bill Bryson, William Bryson, uh, and it's called uh, One Summer, uh, the summer of 1927. Uh, excellent book. Um, I like histories. I like histories of the big events, but I also like histories of, of small things. I like histories of what common people went through, and there's a lot of that in in this book. Uh, it, it really, it's, I think it's the chapters are by month, and he deals with things like uh, Babe Ruth, uh, the 1927 Yankees, which uh, many say was the greatest team ever. Um, I'll put my 76 Reds up against them. But anyway, um, uh, several chapters on the Yankees and Babe Ruth. Um, there are chapters on uh, Lind uh, Lindbergh, the flight, and then even more importantly, I think the aftermath of uh, Lindbergh's flight and, and his issues in dealing with uh, with popularity. Uh, there, <clears throat> there are chapters on the, the president at the time, uh, Coolidge. Um, uh, some, some cute stories here, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard these. Of course, he was known as Silent Cow, and, and at one time the story goes that he was at a dinner and the lady next to him said that uh, someone made a bet uh, to me that I couldn't get you to say, say three words. And, and he looked at it. Coolidge looked at the woman and said, you lost. Um, uh, so um, as well as some discussion, a little economics in, in there. This was obviously before the crash of 29. And Bison recounts a very important meeting among the major heads of the central banks of the world, uh, U.S., uh, Britain, uh, France, uh, and uh, uh, Germany. And how, uh, in, in hindsight, they made the mistake of uh, lowering interest rates. And um, uh, that even fueled the, the stock market speculation and borrowing that, that eventually led to the crash of 29. So, so there's a little economics in there. Uh, it's, just a, it's, it's just a wonderful book that, um, again, I, I think of my father because he was, my, well, my mother was too. We're, we're both alive then. And it's just a wonderful book to, to look at life sort of on-the-ground, common life. I mean, these are big events, but, but he, he writes from the perspective, I think, of almost a viewer, someone who's there watching this go by. Well, he has a new one out called The Body, and I recommend it to you, too. Dr. Waldman, thank you for being with us tonight, and we look forward to talking with you on the December 28th about the whole economic outlook for this year and coming up uh, when you're back then. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Good evening. Appreciate it. Okay. And that's our program for tonight. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night uh, about nostalgia.